0: Welcome to another episode of Who Do You Think You Are? Exploring the universe, hearing the voices and exploring the experiences of diverse Jewish people and their histories. In this episode, we have the pleasure of hosting a remarkable guest whose talents span the realms of music, illustration and storytelling. Carol Isaacs, a celebrated keyboard player who has played around the world touring with artists like Sinead O'Connor, the Indigo Girls, and the renowned Iraqi musician, Ahmed Muta. Carol is also internationally recognised as the enigmatic cartoonist, the Surreal McCoy, whose work can be found in the pages of The New Yorker, The Spectator, and Private Eye. In our conversation, we delve into Carol's latest creation, a poignant graphic memoir titled The Wolf of Baghdad. This compelling work is more than a book. It's a personal journey through her family's history, And the vibrant Jewish community of Iraq and the impact of their expulsion from thousands of years of heritage in the city of Baghdad. So join us in a conversational jam session as we pick our way through the overlaying chords of her Iraqi, Jewish and British identities. Let's meet Carol Isaacs. Hi, Carol. Can you please introduce yourself?
1: Hi there, Lan. My name is Carol Isaacs. I'm a musician and I'm also a cartoonist known as the Surreal McCoy.
0: Carol Isaacs. Who do you think you are?
1: Do you know? I don't know. <laughs> um I'm still it's a work in progress, Ilan. I'm still not sure. I'm, I have an idea, but I'm not sure who I am. We kind of live in a strange world where where chameleons hmm. um, if you've lived in two worlds all your life, hmm. you, you often end up trying to please one side or the other or to 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 kind of blend in. Hmm. Um, not wanting to stick out maybe and just trying to get along with everybody to so become a chameleon.
0: I really relate to that. I think there are people for whom this is an easier question. And I think it is it's the uncomfortableness of asking it that's kind of the point of, of it really, which is that it is it is slippery.
1: I get that question I'm sure a lot of people do who are parents come from somewhere else people ask very nicely where are you from and then you say well I'm from England but no where are you really from part of me wants to say well London but then you know depending on how you know you kind of go into the spiel well my parents came from blah and I live in blah and you know so yeah
0: (laughs) and if you're out of I'm going to make some assumptions as a North Londoner if you're out of that space and you're in a, a different geography a different environment um how how comfortable does jewish fit in that does, does it does fit in that picture good question to non-jews who
1: ask me that question i don't feel i have but well, i do if they delve further and they say well where are you really from?" and i explain my heritage that we're from iraq and then i have to qualify that by saying well actually we're jewish from iraq
0: mm. and mm-hmm.
1: usually the they they look quite amazed oh they were jews in in arab lands they had no idea
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a curious situation to I've, i often feel like i'm jealous of other people who can just answer questions like that really easily we have to make decisions about revealing information in thinking about our jewish identity
1: and reading the room as well i mean if they may their eyes may glaze over as soon as you start giving your family that's the time to stop <laughs> right um So it depends on the (laughs) level of interest in the person who's asking the question.
0: Yeah. And also constructions around race and ethnicity. But where does that fit within the way that you describe and feel about your identity, your ethnicity?
1: I kind of feel that I'm British, I'm Jewish and I'm Iraqi Jewish as well. Um, When none of us are, I mean, we're all mixtures, aren't we? We've all got different things going on. so. I, that would be my go-to, I guess. Three mm. identities that I feel very strongly mm. for each of them. Actually, they yeah, three and- different compartments that have their own set of baggage in each one, and you know, you know, what what one would mean against the other.
0: What was your experience like of sort of growing up with those different ethnicities and identities? It's
1: a good question. It, I remember one of my earliest memories at primary school was being told by another girl, you killed our Lord. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> I think I was six or seven. That's fine. And um, then I went to a very posh school, which I won't name. Um, and I was out of a thousand students. There were 30, about 30 Jews. And of those mm-hmm. 30, I was the only one that wasn't from a European background. So right. I kind of felt already, A minority within a minority, then. Mm. I always, and since then, it's been like that because there's not, doesn't seem to be many of us from the Middle East. I feel other within the other, if that makes sense. I mean, you know, just that's how it is because my parents talked funny. They didn't speak, their English was not their first language. They look different. I look different. My skin is slightly darker. I've got curly hair. I have what we call a Semitic nose. You know, it's like I'm not blonde and blue eyed like my, you know, so already I'm different, right? Yeah. No, just the cultural things like the food and stuff. Living in a house where, within the house, it was very Iraqi Jewish, very. spoke Arabic. My grandmothers never spoke English to me because they didn't know how, so I had to learn to speak Arabic. So I lived, like a lot of people who come first or second generation from other cultures, lived in two worlds, one at home Mm. where I was in one culture and then one outside where I was in another culture.
0: It's, it, being able to navigate those worlds is both a gift, but it's like you're, you're doing a dance that other people can't see. Which brings us nicely, talking about the cultural factors, to my favourite question, which is to ask you, what's on your plate? What, what food sets the Jewish bells ringing?
1: So I had gefilte fish last month and I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I was, it was brilliant. It tasted great um after years of avoiding it it was wonderful but, <laughs> uh, my go-to it was yeah. actually at a, at a really a great film um, a jewish cultural festival in in and and they gave me it was a shabbat dinner and they gave me this one these gefilte balls with uh, what do you call that the horseradish crane it. it was really good oh, um, yeah, okay but my go-to dish would be kubba hamath mm. or kubba with okra Bamya, which is a very traditional Iraqi dish which is uh dumplings semolina dumplings in this divine sweet and sour stew mm. with okra ladies fingers in oh mm. my goodness I'm on a mission to learn how to make it of course I can never make it as well as my mother did or my grandmother or my aunties but I'm gonna have a go but that for me is that's Jewish food
0: for me and and when when would when would you have that? Or was that like a regular? Was that a special special uh, for festivals? Or was it just...
1: Oh, uh... regular, regular dish. It's an intensive work, as any cook will mm. tell you, Iraqi cook. But, you know, my mum, God bless her, she wanted to be British. So we, oh, well, European. So we had a lot of, she delved into these great recipe books in the 70s. We'd have lasagna and, you know, kind of Italian and French dishes. But they would always be the staple of... The Iraqi Jewish
0: food on the shop, but there's sort of those visceral aspects of Jewish identity, whether it's smelling food or or helping to make food, they they connect us with people. But the difference between a cultural experience or a a sort of sort of a, 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 a nationality, I guess we have a religious aspect here. How do you do? What was your experience of Judaism? Did you, did you have a bat mitzvah? Did you go to shul? Did you do Shabbat or was, or was it a more secular upbringing?
1: Um, so, yeah, I had a bat mitzvah at the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue in London. We went. That's where we went for years. Mm-hmm. I thought I was Sephardi. Well, I am kind of Sephardi, but, you know, yeah, it refers more to the liturgy now, I realise, mm-hmm. than, mm-hmm. than... but we Mizrahi, really. And uh, mm. the little synagogue we went to in Wembley, which my father helped found in the 1960s, was a real mixture of um, Spanish and Portuguese, um, some Egyptian, a few Iraqis. He um, had some Syrian, I can't remember. But yeah, it was very much that. And you would hear, depending on who, um, in the synagogue that day on the Shabbat, you'd hear maybe some more Middle Eastern melodies. We went on the high holidays. My my parents, we had Shabbat dinner, Friday night dinner every week because, you know, it was a family thing. It was just a great way to be. And I still do that mm-hmm. with the family, whoever's around. I go to my cousins, my aunties, whatever. Um, but it's more of a and we do the, the Chagim. We do um, Pesach. We do Hanukkah. I mean, really, it's just an occasion to get together and eat.
0: Of course. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah.
1: That, that we have in common with all our other Jewish uh, cousins.
0: So growing up in a mixed household specifically Pesach was um the choroset that my Indian family made was and is delicious the choroset on the Ashkenazi side is, is okay it's fine it, it's perfectly acceptable I just there was one that I really really liked right so um but I also really like the the chicken soup and canadlich and the whole mm. that whole thing. Mm. There were things to look forward to during the year.
1: I'm but, dying yeah. to know what your haros was. Um, oh. I'll tell you what ours was. It may be go the on. same. Uh, date syrup.
0: With uh, yeah, there's dates on the top.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So date yeah. syrup. Come tell me yours. Date Don't syrup. You go first.
1: Date syrup, crushed walnuts. And then you make a little sandwich with the matzah with um, uh, what do you call it? Those uh, lettuce, the romaine lettuce. Romaine.
0: The Hillel so, Sandwich. Yeah, yes. very similar. So ours is uh, pounded um, and it has to be done. You can't put it in a machine. You have to pound oh. the dates. So you pound uh, soaked dates, uh, ground almond, ground walnuts. And then the magic ingredient or the ingredient that causes all the, the, the all the interest in each year is how is Kiddush wine.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, so, right. For oh. more
0: sweet. Oh. But it does a thing. The nuts absorb it. So you can get, so you get this very nutty, sweet, date sticky. So, you know, you can imagine kids sitting around the Pesach table, waiting to eat, desperate to get to the main food. But that's that's like, it's full on. It's like a real nutritious hit. So, yeah. We're such a
1: cliche to Jews talking about food.
0: That- <laughs> I know it's the bit, it's the bit that I felt like I could lean into. I think it's the bit that it's really hard to... To avoid because the, we these are common experiences, and also I think they also show that with the uh, assumptions about uh, that everyone has bagels and mm-hmm. uh, and smoked salmon, and the assumption that everyone likes crane and like I I didn't mind the gefilte fish. Uh, uh, it's that thing of like there are there are whole food traditions that people don't know about, and that are equally. Glorious and lovely, right? Uh, or right. sometimes even And nicer. traditions
1: to go with them. My mother told me the story of back in Iraq, the week before Pesach, because they potatoes were rare and were a luxury in the Middle East, everybody eats rice. I really right. have rice for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. So everybody would sit in the cellar of the house and go through the rice sacks, grain by grain, before Pesach, to get rid of the impurities, to get rid of the Hamets. Mm. Can you imagine mm. sitting and sifting through rice grains? And if you're in a house where often it's 10 to 12 people and you're eating rice two, three times a day, imagine how long you have to do that for. Um, so yeah, things we do. And my partner, who is Ashkenazi, always says he's converted to being Mizrahi because the food's better. And we get, <laughs> we get to eat rice at Pesach. So, yes.
0: I've heard that from a few relationships. There's an interesting aspect there around Kiniyot. So during Passover on Pesach, uh, Jews are meant to avoid all forms of leavening, mm-hmm. leavened food. So, uh, obviously, that, um, bread is the is the obvious one, and any danger of contamination of that needs to be for religious Jews. They very carefully remove all that from the house, and in the Ashkenazi tradition, that includes rice and pulses. Um, so they during uh, during Pes- Pesach don't eat any of those foodstuffs, which. For Jews from the rest of from the rest of the world um, is not the case in terms of where you fit within the history of your Iraqi community and how that relates to other Jewish communities and other faith communities, how much do you know did did you grow up knowing
1: honestly i my parents never really talked about where they'd come from. maybe we'd hear occasionally some nice kind of reminiscences like my mother talking about the the rice thing or Mm -hmm. my father saying you know we had great days with our neighbors in Baghdad but you know they didn't talk about the history and why they had to leave that was never mentioned I I grew up with this huge gap of knowledge I just assumed that they'd arrived in the UK uh, in the 50s and the 60s my Mm -hmm. grandmother was the last to come out in 63 uh, that we just arrived and straight away they'd had me and that's so now i'm british Boom. Yep. done. yeah and we're jewish but we have you know some different things and we maybe speak a little differently at home mm-hmm. but there was no real sense of the word refugee or immigrant was never really mentioned in our household gotcha. to all intents and purposes my parents my dad was the quintessential city gent you know he would go to work every day till he was in his 80s to uh-huh. in the city i just took it as a child yeah yeah. yeah of course you did do. yeah know. yeah I felt different from other people sure but you know I got to play in the lacrosse team you know I did things with my English friends and Mm -hmm. it was okay but like you say not until later on in life did you start finding things out.
0: Mm. And what were the triggers for that because I guess Iraq now sort of post the 90s has a sort of people are, are probably more you know they kind of might be able to point to where it is on the map at what point did you start to sort of think oh hang on you know what, there's that place and there's, that's a real place with real geography which i have a relationship to than a history is there was there a trigger for that or yeah, i mean time? you're
1: aware of stuff like you know the the iraq wars 2003 especially mm. and then realizing after the fall of saddam who has to be said imprisoned and tortured many of my father's business associates in baghdad uh, a lot of uncles who stopped visiting, um, mm-hmm. they used to come over quite regularly. My dad kept up his contacts in Baghdad. So, you know, there was a, a tiny window opportunity where I know one of my, some of my mother's friends went back
0: mm-hmm. and
1: visited. Um, I remember talking about it with one of my cousins. It was just seemed like a very far away place. And we talked about the idea of going back, but we didn't quite really understand why we'd go because we, there wasn't anything left really for us. Sure. You know, we'd been removed from that. Yeah. Landscape, totally eradicated.
0: And um, what were the, and in terms of the sort of sense of a Jewish life in Iraq, was there any sense of what that might look like?
1: I believe that in the 1940s, fully one third of Baghdad was Jewish. About 150,000 Jews in the whole of Iraq. And then I think in the last few years, there's only three left. Um, There were various points throughout the decades where people left or were thrown out or managed to escape hmm. um and there's really no jewish life i believe there's one synagogue that's looked after and it's kept locked up um there are no um graves for me to go visit i can't visit my, my grandfather's graves or anything like that there's nothing left as, as such
0: so that's quite it says there's two layers there aren't there really there's the there's the immigrant story which is the we're british now you know, put, that, put the past to one side. We focus on building a new life here. And then I guess there's the other parallel story of the history around what was happening in Iraq. The expulsion of Jews, the eradication of that whole history, which um, meant that there would have been even more of a gap. Even if you had gone looking, it would have been very hard to find anything. And yet you found an incredible way to do that. Through telling a story and connecting with your with your family, but how did you pass that gap into finding a creative answer to that connection to your past?
1: Okay, so I've said that um, I'm a musician, which I've been doing. I've been playing piano and what have you since I was four. I went professional at the age of 16 or 17, much to the horror of my family, my parents. <laughs> sorry, Mum. Sorry, Dad. <clears throat> but I'm also a cartoonist, which it was a kind of... I, say, I always say I'm an accidental cartoonist. It was born mm. of very long tour bus journeys where I was just sitting looking out the window, so I started doodling. That turned into like a secondary career. Mm-hmm. And I used to do, and I still do gag cartoons, You know, single panel, and get published in different places. And then a few, five years ago or so, there was a call out by this um, feminist comics anthology people group of people in America, and they wanted stories on the theme of origin stories. Mm. And I, I don't know what made me think about it. I thought maybe I should do something. I, I was looking to do something, in kind of long form. So I sent it in. It three pages got published in their little anthology, and it was about. It was called Deep Home, and it mm. was about the experience of living in. In England but also being aware of having shallow roots here and my deeper roots were somewhere else but where gotcha so I did that and it seemed to be well received so I thought well maybe I'll I'll do something long form
0: mm. and I
1: decided to do a graphic memoir using um my family's memories and I went round and I interviewed as many people as I could from my family And I got their impressions. I said, just tell me about your lives in Baghdad, what you remember, both Mm -hmm. the good and the bad. And they gave me so much information. And I managed to turn it into a graphic memoir called The Wolf of Baghdad. And while I was drawing it, um, I thought, well, why don't I use my other career as a musician to sort of make it into something else? And I just started learning music of the Middle East, music, my own cultural heritage, Mm -hmm. I'd been working with this wonderful ud player from Iraq called Ahmed Mukhtar, and he was teaching me tunes that were written by Jewish Iraqi Jewish composers I'd never heard Mm -hmm. of and I was learning all this stuff so I thought okay I'll make it into something called a motion comic which is um, a kind of an animation so I've used images from the book and because they're essentially without dialogue because um, the reminiscences my family's memories are kind of in every other page or so, um, so there's hard, There's no text. There's no dialogue. There's no speaking in the panels. So I've used some of the um, the music, the repertoire that I learnt, turned it into a soundtrack, and it's now a sort of an animation mm. where the the story comes to life, panel by panel on the screen, and it's got an accompaniment accompaniment of a soundtrack of music from um, Iraq, both mm-hmm. folk. Classical, um, there's some sacred Iraq, Iraq, Judeo-Arabic music as well. So, yeah, it became this thing.
0: <laughs> and it's a beautiful thing. I read read the book first and um, for so many reasons it hit hard. Just to echo back to what we were saying earlier on, I think one of the things that's really, I don't know whether you intended to do it or whether it's, as you say, you were just following your creative path but because there isn't a dialogue per se there is a gap there there are gaps that the visuals pull you into but don't give you any answers for when i saw the films with the music as well it's sort of it's weird i, I don't know have i don't know if i have the, the the language to describe it but it it sort of gave a a shape to the gaps gave a shape to those absences in knowledge and and the con- dis- the disconnect of the history and while it's a different story to to my my family history, I really resonated with that. It really it it, it hit me very deep, and that desire to know and to have to connect to those roots, but all the reasons that those gaps, those connections that have been severed by time, by people passing, by people who've you know family members who could have told me those stories not 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 being around anymore, or that I didn't get get a chance to ask them but you captured the connections to those past beautifully. It's a very rich text, which is... Well, um... thanks
1: to my... I have to thank my family for that. They were very generous with their time, and I'm sure they... I was shocked at some of the things I heard, because I hadn't heard them before. Mm. Um, and I just wanted to put out their testimony, really. Uh, that's why there's no dialogue. It really is in their own words. Mm. Um it's not a political statement it's just one family story that happens to be the story more or less of you know Jews of Iraq mm-hmm. you could say um, I've had a lot of feedback from people whose family have come from other places Jamaica Sri Lanka and they recognize that knowing not knowing that feeling there's a wonderful Finnish word called which is kind of untranslatable but basically it means a, a feeling of nostalgia for a place you've never visited, that you've never been to. And all my life I've had this feeling for Baghdad. <clears throat> I've never been there, but I feel like this great nostalgia for it. So this was maybe my way of working around that, mm. because I, I draw it as I imagine it, as, as as the way my family tells it to be. Um, I have to, at this point, thank Arts Council England and Dungor Education for funding the research and development part of the book, which I did for three or four months. And I actually kept a blog while I was drawing the book and researching. And it turned out that I was being followed when I looked at my statistics, I was being followed by a bunch of people in the Middle East, uh-huh. and specifically some people in Baghdad. Huh. And it turned out there were these young students who were curious as to what I was doing. I don't know how they found me. And I got to talking to them over Facebook and I said, please, would you mind? Their English was great, by the way. Would mm. you mind? going to the old Jewish quarter in Baghdad and taking some photos for me because I need to have I want to do the backgrounds for the story and I need to do them right and because we don't have any pictures any photos of of where my family lived I just need to know how it looked like and so they went in and they took pictures and sent them to me and that's how I knew what to draw these amazing narrow alleyways with all these shanashil these balconies these beautiful um, architectural homes that are slowly crumbling and are falling down they're in terrible disrepair now but it was the beginning of, a, of an amazing um, dialogue that was opening up between me and the people of iraq that i didn't mm-hmm. know that was going to happen and when the book yeah. came out and i had this feedback from Iraqis in the diaspora who recognized the visuals and when they saw the the animation they recognized the music as well because it's music they grew up with as well And they didn't know that jews had written this and and there was all this stuff we had in common suddenly. Yeah. So it's morphed into this other thing, which I never, I just wanted to put out my family's testimony. I didn't think it would become this thing where I'm talking to people who I would never would have met otherwise.
0: Yeah, well, we do have more in common than we do have uh, differences, right? We all, of course we do, but we art does that thing of connecting us. So, and I, I love the fact that you've been able to make that connection with people who aren't necessarily Jewish. I don't know whether those students were Jewish, but they, Iraqi, no. just Iraq, Iraqi folk. I did, yeah. fa- I presume yeah. they
1: were Muslim. They, yeah. I don't know. I don't, but. The, that wasn't,
0: that wasn't the driving force no. of their connection with you. The driving no. force of their connection with you is, this is uncovering an Iraqi past, a Baghdadi past, which. And
1: it was a very rich, we, there was a huge contribution made by the Jews of Iraq, mm. you know, not just in the arts, but in government as well. There was a, a Jewish minister um, back in, in the last century before 1920s, the golden Mm -hmm. era. Um, As I said, fully a third of Baghdad was Jewish. But the the one thing that really connects us was we perform this, um, the Wolf of Baghdad live. So it's rather like a silent movie. You have the projection of the book on on the screen. And then Mm -hmm. underneath you have um, an ensemble of musicians, um, a band called Ayn. Led by one Daniel Jonas, who some people might know from his work that he did with Los Desterados, who is a, a band of musicians that he founded to bring back Ladino music to make it popular again. And he wanted to do the same for Judeo Arabic music. So, because his heritage is also Indian, Jewish uh-huh. from Baghdad. And it was him and the wood player Keith Clouston who helped provide the ideas for the repertoire, because they have a, both have a deep understanding, both in the classical tradition and also in the religious Jewish tradition of melodies and songs that we could use. And that's how we have fitted the music to the visuals. And it, it's amazing. We have this wonderful ensemble of musicians we have. I play Arabic accordion. Um, we, um, we have an oud player, as I said, we have um, percussion, Arabic percussion. We have a ne player, which is an Arabic flute. We have a kanun, which is like a plucked, multi-stringed instrument that's very, very Middle East and very particularly Iraqi. So the, the sound is familiar to people from the Middle East. And when we've performed it, we've had a hugely mixed... Or It's been sold out whenever we've done it. We've done it about seven or eight times. And the audience is always a mixture of everybody, people who come mm. because they're curious about... The animation side, the music, because they are UK Jews, there's Mm -hmm. non-Jews. It's wonderful. It's a totally cosmopolitan audience that we have.
0: You've recently worked on a short doc, which also captures a slice through those questions that Jewish Film UK have been involved in. How does that fit with The Wolf of Baghdad?
1: Well, thank you. It's called Growing Up Mizrahi. And it's uh, the brief was um, do a short three minute documentary about being British and Jewish. So in that little three minute short, I address exactly those issues we talked about earlier. I'm a Brit, I'm a Jew, and I'm also an Iraqi Jew. Mm. So and what that meant to be growing up in the world that I lived in. And again, it's done um, in cartoon form, a few photographs, this thing called this kind of animation that's called a motion comic. Mm-hmm. But the important thing is also in this one is that there's a soundtrack, a music soundtrack. And I did it with the Ud player, Keith, from um, the Iron Band. And we had great fun just using some English folk music, some traditional Judeo-Arabic stuff, a classical Arabic song, and just bringing all that together to provide a soundtrack and just telling the story within the music as well as the visuals.
0: Well, having been in an audience watching the doc, um, what was fascinating was the you could almost feel the visceral reaction to the music as the music changed. There was, especially when the uh, English folk tune appeared, uh, I think there was a, yeah, a shrug of the shot as people were like, oh, it's that. Uh, you again played with the people's expectations and took them on that journey, which is, it's, it's fantastic and highly recommended. And we'll be providing links to, in the show notes to how you can find screenings of the films and where you can find the book, of course. In the last uh, episode of Who Do You Think You Are, Penny and I had a conversation where we looked at the overview of the idea of what Mizrahi means and where it's come from. I just wonder how you feel about the term Mizrahi.
1: Mizrahi was coined in response to the million or so Jews from Arab lands who arrived in the newly state, formed state of Israel and they had somewhere to go finally, but they found that they were being othered by Mm. the European Jews who heard them speaking Arabic and thought this is the language of the enemy.
0: Mm. Their culture
1: was very different. Their music was very different Mm. and they were very much looked down on as second-class citizens. I think that is not a controversial thing to say. Um, They were called, it was a pejorative term, Mizrahi, like Mm. Eastern. Mm. So, I think we're reclaiming that word back. Um, I'm happy to use it. I'm Mizrahi. I'm my, my family is from the Middle East. What do you want me to say? I'm not from the North. I'm not from the South. I'm not from the West. Middle East, Eastern. Love um, it. I would. You could call me, even if you want to call me Babylonian, that's fine. Somebody else came up with that. Say, we're well, Babylonian <laughs> Jews, right? Okay, whatever. <laughs> but Mizrahi is fine. And it is. It, it means literally from the word Mizrah which means East in Hebrew.
0: Yeah. No, no, I love it. I love the reclaiming of it, and I think that's that's the joy of the way that these terms get they evolve, right? Oh, and they uh, and they change. But I think the uh, you know my initial reaction was a sort of geographical frustration. I was like, but these are European Jews referring to people who are coming from the north as being Easterners, and they're in now they're in the. The positional labelling bothered me on one level, as well as the sort of political um, orientalism of it all. But, yeah, at the core of it is that the, the Iraqi Jewish community are as close to the Jewish centre. What well, you know, It was historically one of the centres of Jewish ex- scholarly expertise for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So, 2,600,
1: actually, if you want to be precise, yeah, or even, they, maybe even more. Uh, yeah, so we, we yeah. were in, yeah, uh, that's exactly right.
0: It's a it's a perfect name, but also it has a lot of uh, a lot of other connotations. For, baggage, for, in, bag, <laughs> baggage. That is the right word. <laughs> we get labelled by other people. We all get labelled, and I just wanted to check how that label sat with you. So thank you for answering yeah. that question. Um, on the history side of it, just what more would you like to know? If you could, if there was an easy way to open a box and find there's a question that you have about your history and your the history of your family and your community, what more would you like to know?
1: Gosh, that's a hard one. We don't really have a family tree. We have one going back to 1880, sort of, and it's rough.
0: Mm. And
1: that's it. I mean, I would love to know who they were before. On, on the family tree that we have, actually, the very first line, it's got the, the two kind of, the woman and the man, are, and then underneath they had six or seven children and one daughter, I'll never forget this, who's my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-aunt. Sulha, her name was. Uh-huh. And in brackets it says, kidnapped by Arab sheikhs. We don't oh, know. Yeah, it, yeah, this is, <laughs> apparently this branch of the family had a yeshiva, a Jewish school in Basra in the south, near Azra's tomb in the desert, um, mm-hmm. outside the city. And the story goes that she was a very beautiful young girl, probably who knows, maybe she was under twelve, I don't know. But she mm-hmm. just got kidnapped one day by a bunch of sheikhs just taken away and no one ever knew what happened to her. So that's the only thing on my family tree. So I'd like to know where she ended up.
0: Yeah. Gosh. Maybe she and ended up
1: in the in the in Saudi Arabia and I have a direct descendant there, who knows? It'd be rather pleasing, uh, wouldn't it?
0: <laughs> that's a painful and kind of scary. I think it was half
1: of, of the course in those days. I mean mm. you know, they had huge families. Mm. Not all of them survived. No. Not anywhere really. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But that's that gives a it gives a flavour of how recently, relative, you know, historically recently, um life was more uh what's the word? Random, scary, like um, vulnerable, precarious vulnerable, precarious <laughs> those those are yeah. the right words. Are there any sort of unique challenges to sitting within the Jewish community with your identity? And, and then beyond that, the wider community in which you live?
1: I have to confess a terrible secret here. I actually support Manchester United.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, well, I'll can, hold that secret close. Don't worry. I, I you're can you're only in a safe ex- space, Carol.
1: Explain that it was during when I was growing up and as a kid, they were the best looking. Footballers and <laughs> a crush on um, So apologies, everybody.
0: Um, so no what was the Was yeah. being a man a Manchester United fan? Did that put you <laughs> at odds with other British Jews? Did they support other teams? Perhaps that, that think, maybe. What would the other team be? What you think? <laughs> well, honestly,
1: Ilan, it, 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 it because I've worked in the secular world for want of a better expression. Yeah. In the I've worked in the entertainment business for so long. We all know everyone there is, it's all, you know, multicultural, this touchy-feely, everyone loves everybody and it's great. Yeah. So I've yeah. kind of been protected from, uh, often I've been the only Jew, well, the only woman mm. working in, in bands. Or I did I did a lot of session work, still do. Mm. And although there are more and more women um, instrumentalists now, there were some times when I was the only person there and, People would assume that I was there because I was someone's girlfriend or someone's sister. (laughs) Um, But that was the only things really nothing to do with being Jewish. uh, Gotcha. Really, Um, I kind of had one foot in each world quite comfortably, Mm. as we talked about before being comedian not comedian chameleon. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't um, have ideas above my station don't worry i
0: have i've seen the i've seen your uh, your comic work i think i think we can take i don't think comedian's the right word but certainly comic we can go with um uh, uh, oh, i'm putting a label on you that's naughty sorry a little sort of uh, side sidebar here but i wonder about the the relationship of the artistic world to jewish identities as a safer space where you can be weird and different in compared to the norm and not be challenged on it. Is that something that resonates for you and other people that you've met in that community and space?
1: Yeah, I have to say, um, especially doing this project, which is all about being Jewish and being happened to be Iraqi. People have taken it at face value and just sort of gone with it and gone. Well, I didn't know this, you know, sometimes they say, thank you. I, I learnt a lot, whatever, and you know, I'm happy to hear that. If they, they they now understand a bit more. Um so no, it's not been there's been no negative response mm. at all to this. And not even a politicizing of it either. It's just been taken on face value as a family story. Yeah. That happens to be set in an Arab country and mm. the family happened to be Jewish, that's all.
0: It's like a a pass around people's expectations and barriers, isn't it? I guess that's what art can do over any kind of academic work or polemic.
1: Yeah, Yeah, if you immerse yourself, let yourself go into it.
0: Anyway, I'll stop blowing smoke and saying how great your book is because that's not what I'm meant to be doing here. This is not a promotional piece, Carol Isaacs. (laughs) I'm not here to promote your book. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But I liked it a lot. I wonder whether there there are things that the Jewish community, the British Jewish community at large could do to better support and include Jews who are like you, what do you think needs to change?
1: Well, I'll tell you what has been an amazing opportunity that um, my book is now on the curriculum, history curriculum at a major Jewish high school in North America for year 10. Uh, This happened last year. I was as shocked as anyone else, Um, (laughs) but, The teacher, who is a Jewish comic scholar, Dr. Matt Reingold, got in touch with me and said, I really want to put this on your on our school curriculum. And he suggested that the time we write together, we write an educator's guide, which we did. It's just a free resource available on my publisher's website. Um, It's useful for teaching the book. Also, if you want to use the book in a book club, it helps you understand how to read a graphic novel. If you've never read one before or. And it also helps teachers to, with exercises in the book, uh, creative exercises they can use in their classes. And I'm hoping that it will take off in this country because I don't think our history is no, as as well known in British Jewish schools as it perhaps should be. Um, I do know that uh, at one Jewish school with, which one of my cousins' kids goes to, they 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 took on board a um an Ethiopian song for Hanukkah or something it was, mm-hmm. and they and they the kids loved it it was something new something different so things like that if we could do more of that and just showcase the amazing diversity of the Jewish experience where we are from all over and we have the most amazing traditions and cultures and we, they should be you know shared and celebrated really
0: fantastic I wholeheartedly applaud <laughs> Carol, thank you so much. Um, I understand you better. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your openness thank you for um, thank you again for the book and the film it 's certainly generating really interesting conversations and storytelling in my life as a way to open conversations about um, migration and identity, which are very current for all as you say all sorts of people so Um, Thanks so much for sharing that. And as as someone who's worked in uh, the school's publishing sector, I can heartily recommend the Educator Guide. It, It does a brilliant job. So I think teachers who are listening, people who work with young people should definitely check that out. And most of all, I'm really grateful for your generosity, which I think shines through the work shines through when i've talked to you before and when i've talked to you today it's it's not just about telling your story it's the it's a generosity of spirit and it's a generosity of, and in, in in curiosity i think which shines through and that that gives me hope so thank you so much for coming
1: pleasure thank you so much Ilan, for having me it really been a pleasure to talk to you and for your very insightful questions
0: that was the amazing carol isaacs you can find her as the surreal mccoy on socials and her book the wolf of baghdad is in independent bookshops and via her website and it's a great gift teachers check out the guide for schools available in the show notes as it's not just great on the history of iraqi jews but full of helpful resources for educators wanting to use graphic novels in their classrooms and understand how the form works Show notes also include recipes and definitions of words and ideas we discussed. There are also links to the other creative people Carol mentioned. I'm so grateful to Carol for sharing her story and introducing us to her work, not just because they're awesome, but because her story is relevant beyond Jewish communities and Jewish diversity as it taps into experiences of migration, trauma, and adaptation that is part of the human story everywhere you might want to explore earlier episodes and look out for new episodes coming with some great guests of course the easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the pod via your pod feed and while you're there why not like and review us it really helps it's really easy to share us too either from your podcast app or via our social media spaces we're on blue sky facebook and others links in the show notes this has been another adventure into the Juniverse with me, Elan Ezekiel, in the Who Do You Think You Are podcast.